Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is John Warwillow. He's the president of the Value Builder System and the host of the Built to Sell Radio. So, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tats. So, John, you have a lot of best-selling books. You've been doing this a long time, and you have this new book, and the title is The Art of Selling Your Business. Why did you write this new book? You know, I've, I've been doing this podcast for a while, Built to Sell Radio, where I interview a different entrepreneur every week and uh, ask them about their exit. You know, it's right, right before our episode recording, I just interviewed one, a guy who sold a professional services company, which usually trades at a fairly low multiple because there isn't a lot of, you know, assets or whatever. Usually trade around five or six times earnings. He sold it for 12 times earnings, which is just like kind of mind-blowing for folks in the professional services space. And it just, it's, it's another example of what I've found in interviewing all these entrepreneurs is there seems to be two types of owners, some that, that basically sell their company for an industry standard multiple. And then there's this rare few, like the guy I just interviewed 10 minutes ago, that seem to punch above their weight when it comes to selling. And so I really wanted to, to try to codify that, try to figure out like what it is that the guys and gals who do way better than the industry standard multiple, like what do they do? And, and that's, what I tried to do in the art of selling your business is, is sort of try to provide a bit of a field guide for entrepreneurs to punch above their weight. Wonderful. I love overachievers. So break, <laughs> break down, break down some of the things you've learned. Oh, wow. There's just so many things to, to think about. I think when it comes to selling at a premium or again, punching above your weight, I think that there are two sort of pillars of that, two categories of, of strategies. The first is, is really about getting competitive tension, effectively creating multiple buyers for your company. That's the first sort of pillar. And there's, there's dozens of strategies around that. And then the second pillar is, is sort of negotiation hacks, right? So like, how do, you, for, how do you punch above your weight? The natural buyer for a company is going to be between 5 and 20 times the size of the business that it's, it's being, that it is acquiring. And so you're, as the entrepreneur, you're by definition kind of, kind of in a David and Goliath sort of battle. And so the question is like, how do, you, how do you defend yourself? And so those are the two pillars that we can kind of riff on together. But those are the, I think, the two essential ingredients to, to be able to do this, do this right. Sure. How much of it is knowing what you sort of have in optimizing it? And how much of it is understanding what the other side is looking for? Yeah, look, I think a lot of it comes down to understanding strategically what the other side is trying to do. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I think we make the mistake because we run our companies, right? All day. And we're thinking about selling our product. And then when we think about selling the company, it's like, well, if company A buys us, then we can use their sales distribution, their sales channel, their, to sell more of our stuff. And, and exactly the opposite 
is what acquirers care about, right? They're just as myopic as you are. What they care about is selling their stuff. And so I'm reminded of, of a woman I interviewed in the book. Her, her name is Stephanie Breedlove. She built a company called Breedlove and Associates, which did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. She built it up to $9 million of revenue, about 10,000 customers. And she looked out and said, like, what's this company worth? And you know, to financial buyers, it wasn't worth all that much. But she saw care.com out there. And care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers, right? You plug in your zip code and it'll give you the people in your area that have been five-star rated to watch your kids. Well, care.com at the time they acquired Breedlove had 7 million subscribers. Breedlove had 10,000 customers. So you do the math and, and this is what Stephanie Breedlove did. She said, look, if, if 1% of my, of your 7 million subscribers buy my product, that's 70,000 customers. That's a business that's seven times the size of my company. And then let's just dream for a second. Let's imagine just 2%, right? Now it's 14 times that. Anyway, long story short, Breedlove sold her company to care.com for $54 million, wow. which is unbelievable given the fact that her revenue was just $9 million of revenue. So she effectively sold for six times revenue. Six times EBITDA is a great outcome. And Breedlove sold for six times revenue because she was thinking about how do I help care.com sell more of their stuff? That makes a lot of sense. Is there, besides that, is there certain types of business models that tend to sell at higher valuations? Sure thing. I mean, classically, SaaS companies, right? Software as a service businesses generally trade at much higher multiples. And the reason for that is in part, it's software so that it can grow very quickly. But the, probably the more important reason is recurring revenue right? Because acquirers, they're looking for a business that can continue after you, the entrepreneur, leave. And so recurring revenue is, is one of the things they look for and, and they will pay more for. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the security industry. So you like no security companies, like little, they watch your home or your office, little keypad, you punch in the numbers. Those businesses have installation revenue, which is the kind of one-off revenue where they install the keypad and they have recurring or monitoring revenue. And acquirers pay right now about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and about $2 for every dollar of recurring revenue. Mm. And so said another way, your recurring revenue in, this, in the security business is worth almost 3X your install revenue. And so that's one of the secrets to, to jacking up the value of just about any business, thinking about how do we create recurring revenue or some sort of service contract or something that continues beyond just the sort of installation or one and done revenue? Mm, that makes sense. Now, what do trends factor into valuation? Certain industries, certain industry cycles, how does that factor in? Yeah, so things like interest rates are a big deal. Things like pandemics <laughs> affect the value of a company. We're recording this in the throes of this, uh, this uh, COVID pandemic. And it's had a big impact on, on business owners for sure. We, we've just done some analysis of people who use our platform, Value Builder. We basically, everybody who starts with us goes through and completes a questionnaire. We then analyzed the, the intake questionnaires of people who started with us prior to March of 2020 and compared them to the business owners who completed their value builder questionnaire after March of 2020, so during the pandemic. And two things pop out. One, 
is that business owners have moved up their sell-by date. They're now planning to sell their business 20% sooner. Mm. The second thing that's interesting is that the appetite to sell their business to a family member has dropped through the floor. They're no longer planning to do family transitions. It's now less than 15%. Fully 60% of business owners plan to sell their business to a third party. So... Like, I don't know why that is. That's a statistical quantitative. It's 10,000 users. It's a, it's a hard data set. Personally, I think it's probably because this pandemic has been so stressful, so difficult for many businesses that they, they just don't want to pass that albatross down to their kids. But it, it is causing business owners to ask themselves like, and reflect on the fact that there's more to life than, than what they're doing. And they, in many cases, have decided to sell. Interesting. Now, in sports... They're in competition. Golfer misses a putt. They could lose a million dollars. There's those key moments where things can turn. In the process of trying to sell your business, what are those key moments? Like when you say something bad and the value of the company drops a million dollars, what are those moments? What are those mistakes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to write the book because I've had the chance to listen to 300 stories now of entrepreneurs selling. And I'm reminded of the story of Sully, you know, Sully guy who landed the airplane on the Hudson river. Yeah. Like Sully had done everything there was to do in an airplane. He was a trainer, 40 year veteran of flying yet. He'd never had the opportunity to land a plane on the Hudson. And, and for a lot of entrepreneurs, many of them have are very, very sophisticated business people. They know all there is to know about sending an invoice, selling a customer, hiring employees, you know, signing a commercial lease. But very few have gone through the process of selling a company. And so that's, that is what we try to do in the book. To answer your question specifically, there are a lot of things you can avoid. One, one of the classic things is when an, entrepreneur, when an entrepreneur answers the question, what do you want for your company? And it's almost always a mistake to answer that question. And I'm reminded of a guy named Chris Jones who started a company called Pepper Jam. And Chris, I interviewed for the book and I, and I said, tell me about the story. And he said, well, it's funny. I was in, Pepper Jam was a, an affiliate marketing software. And he was asked to meet with Michael Rubin, who is a guy who founded GSI, sold his PayPal, very epic entrepreneur. And Jones thought, oh, I'm, this is great. I'm, I'm getting to have a kind of a, a one-on-one with this guy, Michael Rubin, who's a sort of a tech luminary. Well, Jones walks into his office and instead of Rubin being by himself, he's flanked by his chief financial officer and his legal counsel. And without even the exchange of basic, basic kind of pleasantries, Rubin looks down his glasses at Jones and says, what do you want for your company? And Jones is like, what? <laughs> What are you talking about? I didn't come here to sell my business. I'm here to talk to you about technology. And he said, no, no, what do you want for Pepper Jam? And Chris was put on the spot and, I, and sort of blurted out a number. And instead of reacting to the number, Ruben turned to his chief legal counsel and his CFO and said, I think we can get a deal done. And, and, and I asked Chris about it later. And he said, yeah, ultimately, I think I put a ceiling on which I will ever sell my company because that number was what Ruben was telling his CFO and chief counsel to make sure they never paid a penny more than that. And I think that's, I've always remembered that story because I think it's always, it's almost always a mistake to answer the question, what do you want for your company? Equally, you can also make the mistake of blurting out too high a number. 
Like if you throw out some number that's so outlandish, it will turn off a lot of acquirers, right? They'll be like, okay, this guy is completely out to lunch. Let's not even bother to engage. And so too low and you put a ceiling on which you will never sell your company for too high and you're likely to make people walk before they even learn about your business. And so I just think it's always a mistake to answer that question. Yeah. So, so what's, what would be the response? Well, you'll say, what will you pay for it? Or why don't we look at what we're doing? What's the follow on for that? Yeah, look, I think you can ask for an IOI, an indication of interest, which is a less formal document than an LOI or a letter of intent. And you can simply just say, look, I wasn't planning to sell. I'm not planning to sell. Uh, I'm happy to keep my business and we're growing, et cetera. But I'm also a reasonable person and I'm happy to entertain any reasonable offer you think makes sense. So happy to, happy to review an IOI if you want to, if you want to prepare one. And again, an IOI is a industry lingo. So even suggest, even saying the acronym IOI would, will suggest to the other side that you're a relatively sophisticated seller of a company and that you know the, the process. So an IOI usually is a range of multiple. It, it, it's not usually we're going to we're offering to buy your business for a million dollars. It'll usually say we'd be interested in exploring buying your company. Our you know multiple range would be generally speaking between X and Y. So it's a vague document, but at least it's. It's a, it's a formal you know, shot over the bow to you as an entrepreneur. Yes, making their intentions known. A love letter mm-hmm. of sorts. <laughs> a love letter, exactly. Whereas a letter of intent, yeah. an LOI, is an engagement ring, right? Yeah. To use to, to extend the analogy all the way. A letter of intent is where you effectively are getting married. You're getting engaged to be married. And it usually includes a no shop clause, which effectively means that you are agreeing not to negotiate with anybody else, which can get you into trouble downstream. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I asked the question because in your book, Built to Sell, one of the questions that people ask is, why are you selling? And there was this certain response that you weren't supposed to do. Can you walk us through that that scenario as well? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, if you're like a lot of most entrepreneurs, you're selling because you're bored, you're tired, you can't stand managing employees anymore. You hate taxes. You're frustrated. Like there's, we could all throw out all the frustrations most of us have about running a business. And they're almost always a mistake to answer that question in that way. Because again, for an acquirer, you know, as much as you're leaving your business, they're starting their marathon, right? So they want to know all of the excitement. They want to they understand all the things that you, you, you can do with the company. And so, again, depending on that structure of a deal, there's different ways to answer that question. If it were a private equity group, as an example, where they generally buy a portion of your business, 60, 70% of it, and ask you to carry a portion of your equity into their new business, the new entity, an answer to that question might be something like, we need some outside capital, some expertise to get us to the next level. Personally, I'd like to rebalance my personal balance sheet a little bit, diversify a little bit, but I'm still really excited about the road ahead. And the reason you answer that way in that, in that fashion is because private equity groups do not have a management. They buy, but they want you to stay on. And so they've got to hear that you're willing to stay on, that you're willing to put some skin in the game. Now, if you want to walk off into the sunset and, and not stay on, the response might be different, but it depends on who the, the buyer is. Sure, sure. So I'm not interested in, in this business. It's annoying me. 
and pay me a lot of money. That's not a good one. <laughs> that's not a good, that's generally not a, a good response. No, no, this business is terrible. It's frustrating. I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? If you're selling a car and you're like, yeah, the muffler is terrible. The brakes are shot, but you know, please buy it. Yeah, that's not what you want. It's not what you want to be saying, obviously. Oh, so what sort of stuff, you know, you have this new book, you're launching it. What, what does this year look like for you? Like what's the, the path ahead? Yeah, really. I mean, at Value Builder, which is the kind of company I spend 95% of my time on, we are on this kind of mission to level the playing field for business as they approach their exit. So we've got, we've got lots of folks, lots of, lots of work to do on that front. The new book is, is keeping me very busy as well. So it's, it's really continuing to run, run Value Builder and, and work with entrepreneurs to help them improve the value of their company as they, as they go, to, uh, go to market. Yeah, awesome. I had a friend of mine, Brett, that mentioned that was curious about value builder. Is that just through implementers or do you have sort of a mastermind self-directed track? How does that work? Yeah, 100% of the business owners that work with us are partnered with a certified value builder. So that is a, the name we give to the individuals who are our partners in the marketplace. So, so they are they're there. And in particular, because look, you know, going through and, and approaching a business to sell it is a very emotional, you know, it's an emotional journey. And so having someone to, to be your guide as you go through is, is important. I know for me, when, you know, my last company I sold, it was a long time ago now, 2008, 2009, I hired an advisor, like a third party business coach. And I did that because I really, I didn't want to tell my employees that I was selling, but I did need some outside help. And technically I needed some outside help, but also kind of just to, to be a, an emotional kind of sounding board, I needed that help, right? So it's an emotional process for sure. Wonderful. Now, is there, is there anything that I should have asked you, but didn't? Here's your free swing. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of the things that people can do. I think you asked about the the whole idea of like, what are some of the mistakes business owners make? One of the other mistakes that we see a lot of owners make is getting lured into a proprietary deal. And I write about Dan Martell and how he avoided that. By the way, a proprietary deal is where one acquirer negotiates with you. You, you negotiate the sale with one buyer. And it's almost a recipe for having to to drop your price and not get the deal terms you want. The, the ideal is that you get multiple buyers. And I learned this sort of some ways, some hacks to get multiple buyers to the table. Dan Martell is, is, uh, is one that comes to mind. He built a company called Clarity FM. And uh, he knew that it was likely to be acquired by one of the big Manhattan media companies. And he didn't want to get suckered into one of these proprietary deals where he started negotiating with one of them. So he hosted a, an event. And to the event as a guest, he brought the CEOs of all three of the most natural acquirers for his business. He didn't say anything to them. He didn't say anything about wanting to be acquired, but just the very fact that they were all in the room was enough to signify to, or to kind of communicate that he wasn't going to get suckered into a proprietary deal that if they were going to want to buy him, they would have to compete with one of the other two people in the room. So I think that was a very sort of savvy way to make sure that you don't get lured into a proprietary deal. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. And he didn't have to, to say a, a word. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, you know, it's nuanced. It's, it's the, and that's why 
the title, the art of selling your business, there's some art to it. There's some nuance that I think is, is important. I'm reminded of another story, Jeffrey Feldberg, who built his company. They got three times earnings, an offer of three times earnings. They were a professional services web design shop. And they thought, you know, three times is kind of a ho-hum sort of acquisition offer. Like, we want to do better. And so they thought about, well, how do we get better? What can we do? And they sort of changed the way they described their company. They had a little niche where they were helping universities build their websites. And so they changed their positioning, the way they talked about their business and went from being a custom web design shop where they got an offer of three times EBITDA to being a leader in the e-learning category Mm. where they were basically helping universities put their courses online. They made some other changes to the business model where they did revenue sharing. But I believe part of the improvement in their valuation was in how they positioned and talked about it. Again, the the art to it. Anyways, long story short, this company traded or sold for 13 times EBITDA two years after they turned down the offer of three times EBITDA. Again, part of that is this, it's not necessarily an improvement in the in profitability of the business, although it did improve. It's how do you position it, talk about it. And in this case, they just changed from being a web design shop to a leader in the burgeoning e-learning space. And all of a sudden, their valuation blossomed as a result. So there's a lot of nuances to what we're talking about, but the idea is that there's some art form to it as well as the science. Awesome. If you're listening in and you're considering this, selling your business or selling a business in the future, go out, get John's book, read it cover for cover. Thank you so much, John. You are a wealth of information and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Tats. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.